I was fast asleep, feeling as though I was in a dream, as I was being shaken awake by my oldest sister, Katrina, whom was probably sound asleep over 300 miles away in her trendy Dallas, Texas apartment. Tears of joy filled my surprised eyes as her excited voice rang through my entire body. I was not dreaming. My sister had intentionally made a secret surprise visit home to see me. A sleepy, agitated voice rang out from the other side of the room as my grumpy sister Joanne invaded our happy reunion. The squeals of delight pierced throughout our entire house as she too realized the source of my initial noisiness. As different as my sisters were, they were both indeed my very best friends. Katrina was the oldest of us girls. She was one year older than Joanne, whom was one year older than me, as we were the stair step in our six children home. However, the first three were boys. Katrina was my idol, my friend, my hero, and I truly worshipped the ground that she walked on. She taught me so many things about life, love, and compassion with the patience and understanding of a much older, more mature person. When she got excited about something, she had this unique, contagious glow, and with a single glance, she could make me feel all warm and fuzzy inside. Joanne was a constant adventure with incredible instincts and intuition, and was quite frankly one of the smartest, most determined individuals I have ever encountered. She was our leader, which was kind of nice because generally her powers of persuasion managed to extricate us from any trouble she may have enticed us into getting into. Her spirit and energy were phenomenal, and sometimes just being in her presence could make your head spin. I both adored and admired her, as she brought so much fun and mischief into our world. Katrina and I looked a lot alike. She had dark hair, dark eyes, and an olive complexion. We loved to challenge other partners to card games because we knew one another so well that we could almost anticipate each other's every move. She acted as my labor coach and drove me to the hospital, stopping at the neighborhood convenience store for candy and gum along the way to give birth to my oldest daughter, Sophia. Katrina held my hand as I hesitantly talked to Planned Parenthood about giving my daughter up for adoption. She brought tremendous happiness to my life, as we were pretty much inseparable throughout our childhood and teenage years, even after she moved away to Dallas for college. She would still send me a plane ticket or fly back to Kansas herself for a visit. I missed her terribly. Joanne looked quite similar to Katrina and me as well. However, she had a narrower face and paler complexion. She was a free spirit to a certain degree, with her sister-sibling relationship being the one exception. We three sisters had a bond stronger than any adhesive ever marketed. Joanne's mind stayed about ten steps ahead of any and everyone around her. She was quite simply brilliant. This sister also jumped into action and sent beautiful roses and then boarded a plane because she too had moved to Dallas to come to Kansas the minute I went into labor with Sophia. 
One other person and I were permitted to hold my daughter before turning her over to state authorities. Joanne and I held her as we smiled through our tears. She made sure I was able to get photos of Sophia, which then sustained me for the next 18 years until we were reunited. Katrina was brutally murdered in 1985. She was identified by her dental records, and I was 21 years old at the time. It happened in Dallas, Texas. She was discovered by the stench coming from a car parked in an alley. She was naked and wrapped up in a sheet. Her murder has remained unsolved to this day. I cannot even begin to describe the pain and agony I felt. Actually, this is the first time I really wrote about this, and I can feel the struggle even now, 21 years later. I still truly miss her every single day. Joanne was brutally murdered in 1993. Ironically, this happened in Dallas, Texas as well, and I was 31 years old at the time. Fortunately, an arrest was made within a couple of days because the hotel room that the suspect had murdered her in was actually registered in his name. It was a date rape type of situation. He had beat her up with a beer bottle, which he eventually broke and slit her throat with. The Dallas district attorney said the autopsy pictures were some of the worst that she'd ever seen in her 10 years with the district attorney's office at that time. My already battered spirit was broken down even further for numerous years after this, if not for the responsibility of caring for my own little two-year-old Katrina. I honestly do not believe that I would be here sharing this story with you today. It was an incredibly tough time for me. My sisters, however, in different ways, defined so much of my life. I often feel like a fish out of water, just floundering around this world without them. Although Joanne did get a chance to meet my little Katrina, whom is a living tribute to my oldest sister, both of them were gone before my reconciliation with my oldest daughter, whom they had both loved so wholeheartedly. That's one of my biggest regrets. I went back to Kansas last March, and both of my daughters and I spent one entire beautiful afternoon at the cemetery with my two very different, yet very specially loved sisters. Hey guys, it's Marianne, dog mom, baker, true crime podcast maker. Welcome to the first episode of the special four-part series of Crime Scene and Cupcakes, hosted in honor of three amazing sisters. The essay you just heard is a tribute written by one of the sisters, Deborah Marshall, created on October 31st, 2006. It was read to you by her daughter, Katrina Marshall namesake of Catherine Katrina Mowry, one of the sisters we will be covering in this special series podcast. Her death left behind many questions, questions the Dallas Police Department never clearly answered. Answers to those questions Katrina is still searching for today, because out of the four women, Katrina is the only one left. As we had talked about in the trailer, 
Katrina reached out to us via message on Twitter, asking us to sign a petition for her aunt, Catherine Katrina Mowry, on change.org. And we got into a deep conversation with Katrina about her family and her aunt. And we started to uncover a little bit more about her family. And it just took us down a rabbit hole because her family's life was just incredible. And the search for justice that Katrina's mother, Deborah, and Katrina have done for over 30 years is just amazing because you don't see that in a lot of families. My own personal experience of what I have been doing on a case that I've been working on, you don't see that. And I was so in awe and so inspired by these women. I felt like we needed to do a special podcast so you knew more than just the case. You needed to get to know these women so you could understand why Katrina is fighting so hard and why getting answers on the case of Catherine Katrina Mowry is so important. So Catherine Diane Mowry was born on February 5th of 1961 to James and Catherine Mowry. She was born in Lawrence, Kansas alongside her five siblings, Jim, Michael, Mark, Joanne, and Deborah. Her mom was very young at the time that she married James and sometimes in our youth, we realize our decisions aren't always the right ones. And her marriage came to a tumultuous end with James. However, Catherine's bad luck was about to change when she meets Robert Bob Mowry, a man who, he had no problem marrying a woman with six kids. And he stepped in and raised those kids as if they were his own, alongside his own three rambunctious boys. What was so funny is those three kids and Bob also had the name Maori, just spelled a little different. So the bizarre coincidence is they were just kind of like the Brady Bunch. However, the Maori's version of the Brady Bunch wasn't the quaint Kodachrome version with Alice in the kitchen baking cookies. There was always a demon lurking in their darkness. The demon who did not care who he hurt. The three sisters had no idea the danger that was always lurking around the corner, watching, waiting. Joan, Catherine, and Deborah were just innocents. They're just children. day in 1966 was just like any other. Who knows what they were thinking? They were so young. Were they thinking about their friends? 
what type of games they were going to play, what they might have for dinner that night. The sisters ran outside together because together is when they were at their best, exploring what the world had to offer, just playing games and enjoying each other's company because they were the three musketeers. Horsing around in the front yard and just being kids. When a man arrived, a man they might have known, a man who bore resemblance to the girls. This man, however, wasn't there out of love. He only wanted control. how different these three women's lives might have been if they had not been in the front yard that day if someone had seen what was happening and intervened but that's not what happened instead James Edward Mowry forced the three girls into his vehicle and sped away the three young girls would not be returned home or see their mother again for a year and when the children returned home battered bruised and traumatized by the event, it was difficult for them to recall what happened. They may have buried the memories, but not the emotional scars they carried with them always. However, the Maori household, their religion was one of self-reliance. The children were raised receiving the biggest praise and rewards from solving their own problems and standing on their own two feet earning their own way. So I believe that what, that is what helped foster Catherine to chase her own dreams. She studied to become a realtor and she was licensed in the state of Kansas. But for some reason, that just wasn't enough for her. She chose not to pursue that career. I think it's just an example of her individuality. For example, she hated to be called Catherine. And while working at a local country club, some of the members began calling her Katrina. Katrina, now that was more like her. She was a Katrina from then on out, or even a cat, but not a Catherine. That was too uptight for someone like her. Katrina or cat. She dined on evening shows like Dallas, inspired by the glamour of the fashion and big hair. She had a way with style, and she felt she could do something in her life in that field. Joanne had already made the move to Dallas, and the girls had made multiple trips there. So Katrina made a decision that would change everything for everyone in their life. Katrina decided to move to Dallas, a city so much bigger than Lawrence. So Katrina is living in Dallas, but it's not as glamorous as it was on TV. It was the 80s, and that was a time of experimentation, especially for young women who are trying to dull the pain and memories of childhood traumas. 
living out on their own in the big city, drugs become a dalliance, usually because of the men that come and go into their lives. However, sometimes those choices, whether it be the drugs or the men, those choices can be deadly. Sometimes those choices make you long for the comfort of home and familiarity. So Katrina packed her bags and placed them by the front door, preparing to return home to Lawrence, Kansas. She was missing her sister, and she wanted to see her because she often returned home. Her sister was her touchstone. Distance did not diminish the love of the sisters. But something happened prior to her trip. She and Deborah got into an argument over the phone, as sisters do. No one remembers the context. It's just something that happens between siblings. But that argument will haunt Deborah until the end of her life because it's the last conversation Deborah will ever have with Katrina. Katrina's body will be found in the trunk of a car shortly after that conversation on June 25, 1985. On June 25, 1985, the manager of the Casa 3, apartments at 200 South Marsalis Avenue, was working in the complex's offices when she noticed a strong odor coming from a 1978 Ford LTD parked nearby. She contacted the Southwest Station of the Dallas Police Department, and when the officers arrived, they agreed there was a stench coming from the vehicle's trunk. Many veteran officers would know exactly what that smell was. When they pried open the trunk, they discovered the decomposing nude body of a white female. She was naked and had been wrapped in a stained white bedsheet. The body was taken to the medical examiner who through dental records identified the deceased as Catherine Katrina Mowry. Given the level of decomposition, they were unable to note any superficial marks or wounds on the body. A toxicology report found no drugs or alcohol in her system. Police initially labeled Katrina's death as a suicide. That I have to say really got my radar up from the beginning. On anybody who is a true crime junkie, I don't know of anyone who has committed suicide by climbing naked into the trunk of a car, wrapping themselves up in a bed sheet like a burrito, closing the trunk, or okay, benefit of the doubt. They've got naked into the trunk of the car, closed the trunk, wrapped themselves up like a burrito, and laid there to die. That has got to be the most wild theory I've ever heard of a police department coming up with. And I think Deborah felt that way as well. So, 
After reassessment and reevaluation and Deborah's insistent as she pursued answers on her sister's case, it became ruled to be an unexplained death. It was estimated it had occurred two days prior to her body being found on June 23, 1985. According to her sister Deborah, there was a one to two week maximum span between her phone call, her final phone call with Katrina and the family learning of her death. After the autopsy was concluded, Katrina was finally released and she was able to return home to Lawrence, Kansas. There was little to no media coverage of Katrina's death to the wider Dallas population. What little coverage there was had a lot of conflicting information and was more focused on sensationalism of the local drug scene. One outlet reported her death to be cause of an overdose, even though the toxicology report had yet to even be completed. Another media resource cited an interview with one of the sergeants working homicides who claimed there was evidence she'd taken cocaine prior to her death. Again, there were no toxicology reports that had been returned from the lab at that time. Toxicology tests later were returned and found to be negative and her death ruled undetermined and unexplained. When investigators searched Katrina's apartment, they found nothing out of the ordinary. There was no evidence of forced entry and nothing was missing. In fact, her glasses and contacts, which she was legally blind without, were found on her nightstand. Her travel bags were also found by the front door, indicating she had planned to make the trip to Kansas to visit her sister. The authorities also spoke with Katrina's boyfriend, who after discovering the vehicle in which her body was found, that it had belonged to him. He claimed to have no knowledge she was still in Dallas. He'd assumed she'd already left for Kansas. He did have an alibi for the time of her death. He was also unaware his car had been missing, and it wasn't unusual. Katrina often borrowed it whenever she made trips back home. After the autopsy was completed, Katrina's remains were finally released and she finally got to go home to Lawrence, Kansas. There was little to no media coverage of Katrina's death in Dallas population. What little coverage there was had a lot of conflicting information and focused on sensationalism of the local drug scene. One outlet reported her death to be the cause of an overdose even though the toxicology report had yet to be complete. Another media resource cited an interview with one of the sergeants working homicides, who claimed there was evidence she had taken cocaine prior to her death. Again, there were no reports that had been returned from the lab at that time. Toxicology tests later returned were found negative, and her death was ruled 
undetermined, and unexplained. When investigators searched Katrina's apartment, they found nothing out of the ordinary. There was no evidence of forced entry, and nothing was missing. In fact, her glasses and contacts, which she was legally blind without, were found on her nightstand. Her travel bags were also found by the front door, indicating she had planned to make the trip to Kansas to visit her sister. The authorities also spoke with Katrina's boyfriend, who after discovering the vehicle in which her body was found, belonged to him. He claimed to have no knowledge she was still in Dallas. In fact, he assumed she'd already left for Kansas, and he had an alibi for the time of her death. He was also unaware his car was missing. But that wasn't unusual, as Katrina was known to borrow it whenever she made trips back home. Deborah had a couple of suspicions, a couple of connections. She thought it might be connected to the local drug scene and a person who had a crush on Katrina. Deborah would always inform her suspicions to the local police detectives of all possible leads because she had hoped the police detectives would do the same, that they would reciprocate. But there was a disconnect that even though police departments do need to hold some information back, they just weren't really coming forward at all. Katrina Marshall Katrina Mowry's niece has tirelessly made efforts in communicating with the office of the Dallas Police Department, along with the Dallas Attorney General and the District Attorney's Office. It's known that Katrina's death wasn't taken seriously by the Dallas Police Department due to her involvement in the local drug scene and was instantly judged to be something it wasn't, and it was built on their own prejudices and misogyny. To me, that is obvious by the constant changing of cause of death. How often do you ever see that? In my experience, most medical examiners and pathologists wait until all tests are in and then determine a cause of death. How does a police officer come upon a woman in the trunk of a car, wrapped in a sheet, naked, legally blind without her glasses or contacts, dead for days, and not immediately find this to be suspicious in nature. In 1985, Dallas, Texas had 301 homicides. Did they skew their classification of cases because in 1980 they had 319 homicides? one of the highest numbers they've ever had. We know how Comstat works. We know how making sure the numbers work in the districts happen. Were we hedging our numbers? Was Katrina just a statistic? According to Katrina's niece, once she was in early adulthood, she grew suspicious and realized law enforcement seemed to be giving her mother the runaround, and she began looking into the case herself. 
The family was putting their trust and faith into those detectives. The original investigator, he kept regular contact with Deborah Marshall. His name was Philip Eugene P.E. Jones, and he's a well-known detective within the Dallas community. Unfortunately, he's retired from the department after being in homicide for over 30 years. And it's unfortunate that he retired because he was the family's lifeline. Now, the rest of the Dallas detectives are the lifeline, and that lifeline has been severed. We know full well the Dallas detectives are carrying heavy caseloads, but you cannot mislead families. They are counting on you. They're not the suspect. They're not the adversary. They need your honesty, your commitment. They need your humanity. And the communities need this just as much. They need to feel safe. They need to have faith in you. They need to know you at least have the family members' names right. If you can't get that right, how much faith are they realistically supposed to have in you? You didn't have her name in the records correctly. This is not the first case we've come upon where this has happened. Family is now asking for records and documentation because they no longer have faith or trust in the justice system. They no longer have or feel security in your abilities, not to mention the utter disrespect and lack of communication, response, or acknowledgement. You took that from them. It's now long gone. Katrina's niece has received minimal contact and responses with law enforcement. And what that contact has been has resulted in their conversations going in circles and getting nowhere. At one point, the investigator she was speaking to wasn't even able to locate Katrina in their databases. And based on his experiences, I did put that in quotations, people, Katrina felt like she was being condescended to, patronized, and was told family of likely passing down stories that maybe aren't completely accurate. We understand, again, detectives, officers, you're overworked, you're tired, but families are human. Families are in pain 30 years later, 37 years later, they want answers. You have to treat them as humans. As for what Katrina Marshall believes happened to her aunt, she said, I've never considered any theory of what off the table is completely. However, it is possible that it was a situation where someone panicked and needed to hide her body. But it's still illegal to dump a body. And she is absolutely correct. That is a crime. It is a crime 
against a corpse. And it is a crime that does not go unpunished. I am also equally, equally aware and open to the possibility of the fact that this was a homicide, says Katrina. I say that because of how she was found, naked, wrapped up like a burrito in a bedsheet, along with the fact that she was found across town from where she lived and couldn't have driven herself there because she was legally blind without her glasses or her contacts, and both were still on her nightstand next to her bed across town. Regardless of what happened here, law enforcement Regardless of what happened here, law enforcement failed to do their due diligence, failed to investigate, failed to communicate or update, reassure any family members, failed to bring justice or bring closure to her family. And sadly, not only that, they let her killer escape and they also sentenced her sisters to a life of misery. As Katrina said, no one ever expected any guarantees, but they did expect effort, communication, and at minimum, cooperation. Her point being, whatever they could have and can do, it should be done and had been done a long time ago. She's bitter that Dallas now has the blood on their hands of all three of her immediate family, her direct female family members, including her mom. And now no one else is even alive to experience any type of resolution or happy ending. No one wins from this situation. She has lost so many people in her life. However, law enforcement still can't acknowledge any type of mistakes, accountability, responsibility, or be willing to take any type of action to prevent this to happening to any future families. In 2021, Katrina's niece set up a change.org petition to help gain the case more attention in the hopes of prompting the Dallas Police Department to restart their investigation. On the webpage, she expressed her frustration over how her aunt's death has been handled in writing. After numerous attempts to contact, communicate, request information, give information, and investigating this case on my own with minimal to no response, communication, or contact, from any of the departments within the Dallas Law Enforcement Division or governing offices, I'm now forced to make this personal matter public in hopes of gaining the attention and awareness of the higher courts officials who can actually assist and cooperate with getting some of these types of answers, justice and closure, and most importantly, communication. Katrina's parents have since passed away, as have her two sisters.
Catherine Katrina Maori's parents have since passed away, as have her two sisters. Joanne was a victim of a homicide in Dallas in April of 1993, and we will cover that in the podcast next week. Deborah sadly took her own life in November of 2020 due to the pain, anguish, and mental turmoil caused by both of her sister's violent deaths and murders along with attending the trial for the prosecution of Joanne, which wreaked havoc on her mental health after seeing the crime scene and autopsy photos indefinitely. We will be airing a tribute episode to Deborah Marshall, Katrina Marshall's mom, on April 5th, 2022. Deborah Marshall fought for justice for Catherine Katrina Mowry every day from the moment Katrina was found dead in that trunk of the Ford LTD. And she never stopped fighting until she took her last breath. Her daughter, Katrina, who's named in her sister's memory, she picked up the gauntlet and she continues to fight to this day. So please go to change.org and sign Katrina's petition and help her continue this fight.